Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Tonight we finish off chapter 20, and then there's just chapter 21, 22 left, and we've gone through the entire book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just about word by word. I have a little email here I'd like to share with you. Uh, as you know, as a church, we voted to take on the support of Andrew Caravan, Canavan, <laughs> Caravan, right? Well, I guess, no, Canavan. And he's a second generation missionary to Ireland. And so uh, Mrs. White sent off the happy news via email. He wrote back, hi, Mrs. White. Thank you so much for that wonderful news. Your commitment just pushed us over 50%. That's pretty good, isn't it? So they have 50% of their, their support raised now. We're so grateful. We're planning another trip next summer out west and would love to be with you in person if the Lord allows. I will call and contact when we get closer, if you have an open service. We're praying for you and Pastor White and look forward to doing the Soul Winners Academy again soon. They've uh, taken our program and they're implementing it in Ireland. So that's good news, isn't it? Well, Revelation chapter number 20. And we've covered the first six verses. And folks, um, the way you interpret the Bible is very important. It makes all of the difference in the world. And essentially, you can use uh, what we call the literal method. Or you can use what we call the spiritual method. See, what's the difference? Well, the literal method says, well, it says a thousand, it means a thousand. The spiritual method says, it says a thousand, but it doesn't mean a thousand. It could mean something else, something very spiritual, but it doesn't mean a thousand. <laughs> now, that's very simplistic. And then there are those that try to combine the two somehow. We believe that God wrote the Bible for us humans, and us humans, we communicate using a literal grammatical approach. Context is very important. If you walk in and the middle of a, a conversation two people are having with each other, you might miss the context of what they're talking about and you might misunderstand what they're talking about. And so it's very important that we study to show ourselves approved unto God. It's very important that we understand the scriptures in, in a literal, grammatical, historical approach. You look at how Jesus interpreted the scriptures and he didn't spiritualize them. He interpreted the scriptures literally. And we've got several examples of people who just simply took God at his word. And that's what we did in the first six verses of chapter 20. And lo and behold, we come up with this. Jesus is coming back to earth and he's going to set up a kingdom on earth that's going to last a thousand years. That thousand year kingdom is called the millennial kingdom. A millennia means a thousand. So millennial kingdom means a kingdom of a thousand years with Jesus Christ as the ruler. Now there are people, Christian people who deny, who don't believe in the thousand year rule of Jesus Christ on earth. These people refer to themselves as all millennialists. The letter a is a negation and it negates the millennial. So in other words, no millennium. That's what all millennial means. No millennium. And you say, how do they come up with that? How do they believe that? 
it's because they do not use a literal grammatical historical approach when it comes to the prophecy of scripture. They use a spiritual method. Thousand year reign of Christ. No, it doesn't mean that. It talks about this long, long period of the church. Uh, they get into a thing called replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel and Israel is out, gone, forget it, toast, forget them. And it's only the church. Well, I don't believe that, do you? I think that God still has a plan for Israel. Israel may be set on the back burner, but she's still there, folks. And one day she's coming to the front burner sooner than you think. And the whole program is going to be about Israel. The church is going to be taken out of the world. We believe in a thing called the seven-year tribulation. When will Jesus come and take the church? The beginning, the middle, or the end? I believe at the beginning. That's where pre-millennial comes from. The rapture is going to happen. I'm sorry, pre-tribulational. I think I said pre-millennial there. Pre-tribulational. It happens before the tribulation. Then there are those that believe it happens around the middle time. And typically they're called mid tribulational, although there's a new fancy term out now called pre wrath, but it's basically a mid trib position. And then there's the post tribulation, meaning that um, the church is going to go through the tribulation and then a quick little <laughs> back to earth. And then there's a lot of, uh, how do they come up with that? It's, it all has to do with how you interpret the scripture. Prophecy is very important. Did you know that prophecy holds a large percentage of the Bible? Throughout the 66 books, uh, prophecy is something like 30%. 30% of the whole Bible. So it's important that we interpret it properly. We need to be consistent. We talk about salvation by grace through faith. We, we interpret that literally, grammatically, historically. We need to do the same thing when we come to prophecy. And that's why we have a... Um, millennial kingdom. Now, something else, I think it ties in that uh, some people are all millennial because they, they think that God is finished with the Jews and Israel is over. And there's a lot of people and um, listen, no one in this world is perfect. The Jews aren't perfect. The Gentiles certainly aren't perfect, but a lot of people are blaming world problems on the Jews. I know Hitler did that. And of course, many others have done that too. Personally, I think they're going to try and do that in the tribulation time. And I think that's what Antichrist is going to use to try to destroy all the Jews come the end of the tribulation. This is my slant on it. Um, but if someone wants nothing more to do with the, the Jews, then, you know, all millennialism is the way to go. Spiritualizing, taking the promises made to Israel and now applying them only to the church. Using a spiritual method. You know, the uh, Bible indicates that uh, there are Jews, Gentiles, and the church right now. The Bible tells us, give not offense to the Jew, the Gentile, or the church of God. The church of God, meaning the saved ones. The Jews, meaning the unsaved Jews. Gentiles, meaning the unsaved Gentiles. The church, meaning the saved, born-again ones. We have these three groups, according to Corinthians. Well, I do believe in a seven-year tribulation. I believe in the coming back of Jesus Christ to earth to establish his 1,000-year kingdom. And so that makes me uh, premillennial, pre-tribulational. 
Many years ago, I heard a song and uh, I just love it. I'll try and sing it for you if you don't mind. So, you know, fasten your seatbelt. Don't fall out of the pew when I try to sing. Uh, let's see. It goes, someday when the toils of life are over and the saints are caught away, we will gather round the throne of Jesus for his coronation day. And the chorus, I want to be there when they crown him king of kings. I want to be there when the court of heaven rings. With the happy song the angel chorus sings. I want to be there when they crown him king of kings. I heard that back in the 70s, and I thought, oh man, doesn't that just say it all? Don't you want to be there when they crown Jesus king of kings? Yeah. Are you looking forward to that? I hope your roots aren't too deep in this world. I hope that you consider yourself a citizen of heaven and that you're an ambassador to earth on a mission to make known the glorious gospel. Let's have a word of prayer and then let's finish off chapter 20, shall we? Loving Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this exciting book. What a blessing it is to read it and preach it and teach it and to hear it taught. Our Father, we ask that you would grow our faith in you and help us to have our bags packed every day to be looking up for our savior to work hard, but to leave the timing up to you for that glorious home going. So dear Lord, let us make plans, long-term plans, but let's work as if Jesus is coming at midnight. So bless us now in our study. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we looked uh, very briefly at the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign, which is, which is spoken of in the Old Testament as well here as the New Testament. And it will be a, a kingdom, a world kingdom characterized by peace. If you watch the news day by day, you know that we do not live in peaceful times. You know that. There are wars, protests, riots, everything you can think of. The, the superpowers are rattling their sabers. You know what that means? Back in the days of the, the 1800s there, you know, the army guys would have sabers, and, you know, and they'd kind of rattle them ah, before a battle, before a war. They'd rattle these things, getting ready to fight. And that seems to be what's happening with the nations of the world today. And China's a superpower. Russia's a superpower. America's a superpower. Iran is trying to become a superpower. There are several superpowers with atomic weapons and so on, and they have the ability to cause a lot of damage and a lot of death. And they are angry at each other. World economy, you know, wow, it's going down the tubes fast. It seems to me, from the little that I know of world economics and politics and so on, that we are hanging on by a thread. And so God is the one holding that thread. So until he calls us home, let's make use of the time, folks, because there's not much time left, I think, to live for Jesus. But when Jesus does come back and he sets up his thousand year reign, it's going to be a reign of peace and goodwill towards men. It'll be a time of prosperity and joy and worship of almighty God. 
Satan will be bound for a thousand years and he will have no influence on people. (sighs) Doesn't that sound wonderful? Boy, that sounds good to me. However, the day will come when all that will come to an end. Chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be, oh no, what's that word? Loosed out of his prison. (laughs) Can't we just leave him in there, Lord? Can't we just keep doing what we're doing? Why do we need him? Been locked up for a thousand wonderful years and we've been enjoying things and Lots of babies. I mean, hundreds of millions of babies have been born. And boy, things are just great. And he's going to be loosed. Well, how is that going to happen? Are we going to leave his prison door unlocked? Is that what's going to happen? Huh? Are we going to let him out for good behavior? Huh? Is that what we're going to do? Or is an angel just going to have to go down and unlock it? And then open that door and stand back. That's probably what will happen. You see in verse 8, here's what Satan will do. He shall go out to deceive the nations. Now, during the thousand years, there is no deception. He is a master deceiver. If there was one thing that he knows how to do, it's to deceive. He is an absolute con artist and magician at deception. And he'll get Christians angry at each other. He'll get married people livid with each other. Not living, but livid, angry with each other. He'll get kids mad at each other. Church members mad at each other. He'll get country people. He'll get nationals. Ah, look what's happening all over the world. He is a deceiver, a deceiver, a deceiver. And that's why the Bible tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not the enemy. It's principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's all Satan, very satanic. And he's going out and he's going to start deceiving people again. He shall deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Watch what it says here, Gog and Magog. What in the world is that? To gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Satan is going to enter the world and he is going to find every unsaved person. How is he going to do that? Do you remember reading in Job chapter one, where uh, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came to, do you remember that reading about that? And the, the Lord asked the devil, where have you been? And the devil said from going to and fro around the world, walking up and down it, right? That's what he does. He, he's just always constantly on the move, constantly on the move, watching, observing, giving his commands, lear- listening, learning, uh, making accusations against us and so on. I think his main job right now is to accuse us before the father. It seems to be at least one of his main jobs. And so he is going after the unsaved. You say, wait a minute, time out. I thought this was the millennial kingdom. Yes, it is. The thousand years of peace and joy you spoke of? Yes. And worship of God? Uh-huh. Well, what are, what are these unsaved doing there? I mean, I thought it was just going to be all of the, the saints and the saved in the millennial kingdom. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, it's the saved who go into it. 
Matthew 24, verse 13, the Lord Jesus spoke of, of the tribulation. And at the very end, he that endureth to the end shall be saved, saved out of it for the millennial kingdom. Everyone who goes into the millennial kingdom at the beginning is saved. Now, the people on earth will have their bodies changed. This is not like the resurrection, but they'll have their bodies changed so that they can live for a thousand years. You want to see something? Keep your finger there, please. In Revelation, go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah and chapter 65. Isaiah 65. Boy, Isaiah is a great book. Isaiah 65. And um, tell you what, you help me out here. You read with me verse number 20. Would you do that, please? Give me some help here tonight. Isaiah 65, verse 20. This speaks of the millennial kingdom for actually from verse 17, right down to the end of the chapter, verse 25, you see the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. This is all millennial kingdom stuff. And verse 20, read it out loud. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days for the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And so we're not going to spend too much time here, but it just tells you that at, even at a hundred years of age, they're still considered a child. Um, I've had the joy of talking to uh, people of various age brackets. And I remember talking to a lady on uh, the phone, and she was 90. I'd never met her before. I never talked to her before, but there was a reason why I, I had to call her. And I, I did, and I introduced myself and she was very nice. And so, um, she, she said to me, she said, I'm 90. How old are you? And I told her, well, I'm 64. And she said, Oh, you're just a kid. Kind of felt nice. <laughs> but you see, a hundred years of age, they'll be considered just a kid. It's because they'll, they can live for a thousand years. Interesting, isn't it? It's not something we're used to thinking. We don't think that way, but they will in the millennial kingdom. And so people will be able to live for a thousand years. I want to remind you that before Noah's flood, people were living for 700, 800, 900 years. And how old was Methuselah? You remember how many years? 900 and what? 69, 969, right. Saved people still have a sin nature. Have you noticed that? Huh? Yeah, we still struggle with sin, don't we? That's why it's a good thing to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive them that sin against us. We still struggle with a sin nature. We still struggle with bad thoughts. We still fail the Lord. We still got problems, but yet we're saved. The people who go into the millennial kingdom, they're going to be that way, same way. Only they're going to have their bodies changed. So now there's no sickness. There's going to be no COVID-19 in the millennial kingdom. No need for uh, any of the sanitizers, hand sanitizers. No need, need nothing of that sort. Uh, it's, it's going to be just a glorious kingdom. And the lion and the lamb will actually lay down. They'll get along great together. And it's just going to be wonderful. 
but saved people still will have a sin nature and Satan will be bound for a thousand years. So he's not going to deceive anyone. There's no deception, but babies will be born. Lots of them, millions, hundreds of millions of babies are going to be born and they're going to grow up. Of course, they'll have children and so on. This world is going to see a population uh, explosion like it's never seen before. Up to this point in earth's history, we've had things that have always been pressing, pressing down on the population. Things like war, sickness and death, suicides, murder, uh, accidents, all kinds of things. There's many, many ways in which people die. And they say there's 55 million people that die every year. But still the population is growing. But in the millennial kingdom, with perfect harmony and perfect conditions and no death, the only, the only death might be if there's outright rebellion, which is going to be very few and far between, but the Lord will rule with a rod of iron. He will not allow what's being allowed today. You know, we're, we're putting pedophiles back on the street and they're recommitting their crimes. I've read statistics that say that most murders are committed by people that have already committed murder and we're putting them back out on the streets. That ain't going to happen in the millennial kingdom. We won't even approach anything like it. The Lord will rule and the Lord Jesus will put down any kind of sin with swift uh, justice. Now at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan gathers all of these uh, unsaved. Now where do we leave off here? Verse eight. Say it says Gog and Magog. Gog is considered to be the leader of Magog. Um, He's not the Antichrist, obviously, because the Antichrist. um, I mean, let me give you a little background here. The beginning of the tribulation, according to Ezekiel, um, uh, book of Ezekiel, uh, Gog and Magog are going to attack Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. God will destroy them. And that'll be it for them. So you say, you say, what are they, what are they doing here? Well, they're not exactly here. What they're doing here, they're here to symbolize what the unsaved of the millennial kingdom will try to do at the end of the millennial kingdom. But they've already gotten whacked. Ezekiel 38 and 39, I believe. If you want to jot that down, you can read it later. And so um, say, where, where is this Gog and Magog? Well, they speculate that it's in Russia or possibly in Turkey, both countries of which are enemies of Israel. So in verse nine, we find that Satan leads them to revolt. It says, and they went up. Oh, by the way, look at the end of verse eight. Uh, they, he brings them to battle and the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And that's how many people were talking. Now that's an expression. You'll find it many times in the Bible as the sand of the sea. And the idea is that it's beyond counting. It's a number so big that, I mean, only God would know the exact number, but as the sand of the sea, it's without number. That's how many unsaved people are going to be around at the end of the thousand years. So the population of the world may, who knows, it may hit 10 billion people. And I don't know, maybe 5 billion of those might be lost, unsaved, acting normal, acting like they might be saved. That happens in many churches around the world today. Unsaved people attend churches and they 
behave as if they're saved, but they're not. They're unsaved. But they go to church and they'll carry a Bible. They may even say amen, but they're not saved. And that's just reality. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a lot of these unsaved uh, as the sand of the sea. Now, verse nine, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. That would be Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And that's uh, very similar to how God is going to deal with uh, Gog and Magog uh, at the beginning of the tribulation. So Satan gathers all these unsaved and probably teaches them very quickly how to make war because for the millennial kingdom, there ain't no war. They beat their swords into plowshares. Remember that? Their spears into pruning hooks. Pruning hooks are what you use to pull the fruit down off the trees. Uh, Ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war. As that song goes for the millennial kingdom is going to be peace. There's going to be no schools of war, how to conduct war and military strategy, nothing like that. So no one's going to know how to battle. And so Satan is going to come out of the the bottomless pit and he's going to gather these people. He's going to go up and down the earth all over. He's going to find them. He's going to gather them. And somehow, I guess he's going to teach them how to make war, I suppose. And of course, they're driven mad by Satan's delusions. Satan always has his delusions. Isn't that right? And he tries to delude people with thoughts of grandeur and thoughts of power, thoughts of sex, thoughts of money, and um, maybe even thoughts of uh, other things that might in themselves be all right, but taken to the extreme. That's why we call these people fanatics. And Satan is a a deceptive enemy. He's a deceiver and he's going to deceive them with these mad delusions, but they will never get a chance to fire a weapon or even to light a fire. God sends his fire and he devours them all. All of the unsaved must die physically. There must be physical death. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Verse 10 and the devil that deceived them. There he is again, the deceiver was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that's the antichrist. This is after a thousand years and there's the antichrist. There he is still alive in the lake of fire here in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So God is going to settle the account and Satan and the antichrist and the false prophet are there, well, will be there in the lake of fire. Antichrist and false prophet have been in there for a thousand years, tormented day and night. And now Satan is thrown in there and he joins them and he's being tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. That's what the lake of fire is. It's not a place of annihilation where you're thrown in and you burn up and you're gone. It's not like that at all. You exist, you live in there. And I've said this before that it's interesting, but humans have to have a trial. They have to stand before God at the great white throne. And that's what we're going to look at next here. But Satan doesn't have to. He gets no trial. He's thrown right into the lake of fire. Antichrist and false prophet. They get no trial. That's what makes me think that in the latter half of the tribulation, at least anyhow, the Antichrist and the false prophet 
our human bodies with demons inside them. I think the human soul part of them is gone. So again, I may be proven wrong on that, but I think that's what it is. And so verse 10 here, they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. You can write down Matthew 25, 41 there if you want. And uh, look that up later. Now, verse 11, we get to the great white throne. And I saw a great white throne. That's the GWT. And him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So here we have the final judgment of sinners. The great white throne is not a place where demons are brought up. Satan is never brought up and judged at the great white throne. They get no, no trial. They're just instantly thrown in a lake of fire. This is only for human beings who are lost sinners. And there's going to be all kinds of them there. And this great white throne is so huge. I mean, it's great. That's why they call it great and white. And the idea is dazzling. It's huge beyond belief. It's dazzling to the eyes. And Jesus Christ sits on it bigger than life and terrifying to all sinners. Can you imagine Pilate standing there trembling naked before the great white throne? And he looks up and there's the Lord Jesus whom he condemned to death. Now here's Pilate being judged. The Jews and the Romans who, who aided in his death, his crucifixion will be standing there naked being judged for their sins. And they'll be thrown also into the lake of fire. Can you imagine standing there that day? Sinners who've gone to church, listened to the preaching, taken part in the hymn singing, perhaps even put in offerings, maybe even owned a Bible, but unsaved. They've gone to church. I wonder, I can't help but wonder if there'll be any unsaved sinners at the great white throne who've come to Grace Baptist Church in Surrey. I can't help but wonder that. And I don't know the answer. But I do know there will be sinners stand before Jesus Christ to be judged who have gone to gospel preaching churches and sat there and dug their heels in during the invitation, not wanting to respond and give their heart to Jesus. Judas will stand there naked, trembling before the very savior that he betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's pretty terrifying if you ask me. Verse 12. And I saw the dead. Now these are the unsaved who are spiritually dead. Small and great. The kings and the peasants stand before God. And the books were opened. This would be the books of their life. All of what they did in life. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now we looked at this. We studied this in chapter three, verse five, the book of life has every human's name recorded in it. When they're conceived, when they come to conception, their name is written in that. If they die without Christ, if they get born, they're living and they're sinful and they die without Christ, their name is blotted out. 
And so when you come to the end of the millennial kingdom and the great white throne, the book of life has names in it only of the saved. All of the unsaved dead, their names are blotted out. It's not, not to be found in there. And so the insignificant sinners and the world famous sinners. And you know, something that I think of every once in a while are some of these entertainers that can make us laugh until we're ready to go to the hospital. We're in pain. You know, we're laughing so much. They can make us cry and we can't get to sleep at night because of the images they've painted in our, our brains. And we're weeping and crying. These entertainers of the world, they can thrill us with their abilities on the keyboard and the wind instruments and the stringed instruments. Their trained vocal cords can send shivers up and down our spines. We can be so enamored with the, the aura and the awesomeness of these, these entertainers and some of them super Hollywood stars, but then they die and go to hell. And I think of this, they're making me laugh. They're making me enjoy something, but they're not even saved. If I died, I'd go to heaven. If they died, they'd go to hell. I've thought about this and all the unsaved are standing before God, including all of the millions of rebels, the hundreds of millions of rebels or billions, perhaps at the end of the thousand year, they're all standing there. Their entire lives are recorded in the books and each one is brought up before Jesus Christ and their life is is opened up and the book of life is there. Now look at verse 13 and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and hell death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. This would be people that have been buried at sea and the sharks have eaten their bodies perhaps, or maybe their ashes have been sprinkled out at sea and uh, their their bodies are what are referred to here, but their souls are in hell. And therefore all of the unsaved will be brought back and put into a resurrection body. Now the Lord Jesus spoke of uh, some uh, being resurrected to, um, well, let me read it for you. It's in John here. Why think when you can read it, right? See John 5 and 28. Marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and some, some shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Unsaved people will be resurrected for damnation. So their souls are waiting in hell. It's like jail. They're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. That's like their day in court. They'll be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's like prison. Only it never ends. So the unsaved will be brought back. Death and hell in verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The word death means separation. Physical death is where the soul separates from the body. The soul is out of there and the body is just a hunk of flesh. That's physical death. Spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God. Now that second death here 
is when they're separated from God into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. And they'll be tormented day and night along with Satan, the antichrist, the false prophet. These people who put the gun to their head saying, I'm going to end all of my problems. They pull a trigger. Their problems have just begun. They're in hell. Well, the unsaved ones, anyhow, they're in hell. And they're realizing, what have I done? And there are people in the world who make decisions. And afterwards they say, what have I done? And that's what a lot of people are going to be screaming in hell. But there's no, there's no coming back. There's no second chance of it. Verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so the book of life is like a second checks and balances, if you will. After the Lord brings up a sinner before him, his book is opened. His life is gone through. The Lord will turn to an angel perhaps and ask, is his name in the book of life? A search will be made. The angel will answer back, no Lord, his name is not found in the book of life. And there's the two witnesses against them. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. Back in 1869, there was a little boy born named Bertram Henry Shaddock down in Pennsylvania in the United States. And Bertram grew up not knowing God. He said that his father was an infidel. Bertram said these words. He said, I didn't know what a church was or a Sunday school was with no one to teach me the way of God. I naturally grew up wild. My first trip to church was to satisfy my curiosity. And if I went again afterwards, it was only to get out of some work on the farm that I didn't want to do. He later recalled at the age of 18, I heard a sermon that convinced me that I was treating God worse than anyone was ever likely to treat me. And I saw myself as a lost soul reckoned in the company of the enemies of God broken in spirit. I could not say, Oh God, you can have me. I had nothing to give him, but my burden. Not one of my close relatives or friends was a Christian. My father was hostile and insisted that I had brought shame on the family. And I left home to face the world alone. All my dream castles came crashing to ruins. All whom I had relied upon failed me. But Bertram got saved. Nonetheless, he got saved and finally said to the Lord, you can have all of me, God. And he's never looked back in 1894. He wrote a hymn and here's the words to the hymn. He wrote these words concerning what we just read about. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and he stood on the land and the sea and he swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And the chorus and oh, the weeping and the wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. 
They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Bertram continued, The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. The moral man came to the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as moral men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last, they had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing. As the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Bertram Shaddock spent his life preaching the gospel and serving the Lord. And he went home to be with his wonderful Lord Jesus at 80 years of age in 1950. Folks, we who are saved have the opportunity of serving our Lord Jesus Christ in that coming thousand year millennial kingdom. And I believe it's going to depend upon our service here in this life. If we'll get busy and we'll serve him with our prayers and our study of the scriptures and our tithes and support of faith promise and our study of soul winning and our attempts at letting our light shine and bringing him honor and glory. If we'll get busy with these things, you see, the better we serve him now, the better our position will be in the millennial kingdom. And I ask you, do you think tonight, do you think you could serve the Lord any better than what you're doing now? That's an interesting thought. Would you bow your head for prayer? Loving Heavenly Father, thank you we have this opportunity to serve you. Boy, when we look ahead, Lord, those are scary days for lost people. Maybe it's scary for some saved people too who are not living for you. Father God, I pray for all of Grace Baptist Church. We're not perfect, Lord, you know we're not perfect. The pastor is far from perfect. But Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to do the best we can. Please help us to reach our full potential as a local church in our job to reach this city, in our job to reach the world. Help us to do everything we can. Help us to be humble, sweet, and loving, to put aside pettiness, to concentrate on the harvest fields. Lord, please help us to live for you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.